0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, March 11th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. This week's cover story, Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Tony Coleman, President and CEO, Broadlawns Medical Center. By Joe Guardiaz. As the new president and CEO of Broadlawns Medical Center, Tony Coleman says one of his biggest responsibilities is to remove barriers and create trust so that every physician, nurse, and staff member can carry out their respective roles in the hospital. Coleman, who began his career in healthcare administration while serving in the U.S. Navy, became the leader of Polk County's Safety Net Hospital in December following a national search. He most recently was Vice President of Operations and Assistant Hospital Administrator for Kaiser Permanente's largest and fastest-growing health region in San Bernardino, California. Having grown up in a blue-collar neighborhood of Los Angeles, Coleman's initial goal as a 17-year-old leaving home was to pay for college through the Navy and the GI Bill. Through serendipity and a lot of hard work, he instead went on to earn his officer's commission and serve as a Naval Health Care Administrator. He retired from the Navy in 2016 after a 20-year Naval career. When he's not working, he enjoys attending live concerts, playing bass guitar, and meeting people. Coleman succeeds Jody Jenner, who was president and CEO for 15 years. How did the Navy lead you to a career in healthcare administration? When I enlisted in the military, my goal was to join the Navy and do a four-year enlistment and then earn the GI Bill so that I could pay for my own college because I didn't want my mother to continue working to support me while I was in college. While I was in the Navy, I ended up marrying my childhood sweetheart. We had a child. And then, unfortunately, because of the rigors of military life and sea duty, I ended up getting divorced and I became a single parent. So my goal then shifted and I started looking at how was I going to take care of my daughter? I couldn't do it at sea. So I started going to college at night and on the weekends to earn a degree to become a teacher. At that time, one of the city colleges was holding their courses in the military hospital, Naval Hospital Charleston. One night, I walked past an office that said, Lieutenant Heath, Human Resources. Up until that point, the only Navy officers that I knew were ship drivers and war fighters because I had been at sea. I thought, wow, the Navy has human resource officers? It just piqued my interest. So the next day, I called the hospital and asked to speak to the lieutenant and made an appointment. I told her a little bit about myself, so she knew I was a single parent, and she said, this is a good way for you to still be able to provide for your daughter and maintain your military career because Navy officers that are healthcare administrators don't go to sea. Your job will be to run a Navy hospital. What did your career teach you about leadership? Looking back on it, when you join the military and you're young, you just kind of do your duty. It was my duty to get up in the morning and muster with everyone else. And it was my duty to wear my uniform just so. And it was my duty to stand watch. But at some point, you make the turn and realize that you're part of something bigger than yourself and that's when a duty becomes a desire. That was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned in the military and what I bring here today. I happen to be the CEO, which is an enormous blessing, and I'm just one piece of the puzzle. I cannot do this job, I cannot be successful without Katie Wenger, Broadlawn's Chief Marketing and External Relations Officer, who was sitting in on the interview. We will not be successful without Katie, so I have to empower Katie. I have to demonstrate that I trust Katie, that she's in the right place, and that I believe she has everything she needs to do her job. So my role becomes the job of empowering every one of our employees to believe in that same philosophy. How good is Broadlawn's operational and financial health given what hospitals have been through with the pandemic? When I started looking at this opportunity and researching the hospital in the past, I came to understand that Broadlawns at one point was on the brink of bankruptcy. And Jody Jenner, through his leadership, brought us back, and now we're very strong financially. So because of his leadership and the work that everyone did here, we're able to withstand this pandemic. But there are certain things that money can't buy. We're in a really good financial position, but there's a shortage of people. If you don't have the supply of people, it just makes it tough. That's where we are today. But I'm a firm believer that you train how you fight. That's another thing I was taught in the Navy, and I look at this pandemic as the equivalent of a military deployment. When I was in the military, we trained every day when we were at sea, whether it was a fire drill, a man overboard drill, or an attack drill, so that if it really happened, it was just second nature and you spring into action. The pandemic is healthcare's deployment, and we've been training for it for years and years. It's not without some strain and pain. You see it on the faces of our staff, but we're still meeting the mission of this community. What's the best advice you've gotten from an influential mentor? It's a piece of advice my mother gave me. She would always tell me, it's nice to be nice. And that simply means to treat everybody with dignity and respect. Because you don't know where they came from and you don't know where they're going. You never ever know what somebody's going through and your smile could literally be the difference between life and death, especially in the times that we're living. People are depressed in record numbers. There's a mental health crisis going on. Statistically speaking, 22 veterans today are going to commit suicide. And tomorrow, 22 more will commit suicide. So I would hate to think that I had something to do with that because I lost my temper and triggered something. Just lead with kindness and treat everybody with dignity and respect. And when you do that, especially in a field like healthcare. They understand how much you care about them, and they'll transfer that to the patient. That's our North Star, the patient. Coming from outside the organization, how do you see broadlawns in terms of progress in health equity? I think we're in the best position to ensure health justice. You mentioned health equity. Health equity is the path, and that's the road that we're driving on but health justice is the goal. When you achieve health equity, that's when you provide the same level of care regardless of a patient's socioeconomic status. We do that extremely well here. Our family birthing center is a perfect example of that, world-class, and we now attract private pay patients or patients who may be more financially stable and have private insurance. And we also deliver babies to people who have no insurance. So here you have health equity, where you have people who have means, and they have resources, and they're not really affected by the social determinants of health, and they receive the same level of care as a person who may be a refugee, who's only been in this country for 11 days, or someone who doesn't have a job and doesn't have insurance. We are practicing and we are demonstrating health equity because those two groups Groups of people get the same level of care. From your discussions with the board, is there a strategy for continued growth in facilities in the next few years? Thank you for asking that question, because that's a very exciting question. And my answer is like, I can hardly contain myself as I explain this to you. So our strategic plan has four different pillars right now. The first pillar is our workforce, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, making sure that we train and keep the best-trained workforce. The second pillar is going to be our patient outcomes. How do we make sure that we produce the best patient outcomes? The third pillar is going to be affordability, making sure that we maintain a financially viable organization And that we build and strengthen some of our service lines that are needed in the community and that are doing well. And that we also look for different service lines where we see emerging needs. And the fourth pillar is going to be our community outreach, our upstream community health. The definition of what health equity looks like to the community is going to guide our efforts in our upstream community health. Because I can't sit in my office and say, This is what health equity looks like for the greater Des Moines area. I don't have that answer. I'm new here. What types of civic involvement and interests do you bring with you? In Los Angeles, it was really difficult to be involved civically because of the geography, personally, of where I chose to live and where I worked. I chose to live in a community that was impoverished, because I wanted to bring some of my desire, some of my passion to that community. And so, to the extent that I could assist in the evenings and on the weekends, I did. It wasn't near as much as I wanted to, and I wasn't there long enough to really crystallize anything, because I was there for maybe two years or so. But to answer your question about what are my desires, some of my passions— I do have a heart for young folks, for young kids, and I have a heart for mentoring. And so I would love to be involved with mentoring the youths in this community. What do you enjoy doing in your free time? I love going to live concerts. I do play bass guitar. Not very well anymore because I don't have the time that I used to. But I love anything to do with music, listening to records. It's so interesting. Today's my daughter's birthday, and she called me this morning because I bought her a record player. She grew up with me listening to records, and now she's getting into records on her own. And I love people. I love talking to people. I love meeting people. I love hearing people's individual stories. I love getting to know what's important to people. What do you know? Where do you come from? Tell me about your life. Tell me about your family. I love listening and meeting people. I will always listen. Tony Coleman, at a glance. Hometown, Los Angeles. Family. Wife, Morgan, and adult daughter, Elise. Education. Doctorate in Health Administration and Policy. Master of Health Administration, University of South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. Bachelor of Science in Workforce, Education, and Development from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. Age 42. Contact A. Coleman at broadlawns.org. This week's feature story, Iowa Stops Hunger, Circle Our Cities. Sustainable Iowa Land Trust launches campaign to create food farms where they are needed most. By Michael Crum. Growing food closest to the people who need it most. That's the mission of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust's new campaign circling our cities to find land around Iowa cities that can be transformed into sustainable food farms where fresh produce would be grown closest to cities where they believe it can do the most good. The goal is to circle 10 Iowa cities with 10 food farms in 10 years. Susan Aram, Executive Director of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, or SILT, SILT, said The origin of our Circle Our Cities is to bring home the fact that our metro areas are importing 90% of our food from out of state when we have some of the best soils in the world and we can use just a fraction of that surrounding our cities to feed the people in them. Citing a study done by the Iowa State University, Aram said 200 people per acre per season could get their minimum daily allowance of fruits and vegetables. Silt was formed specifically to protect land for nature-friendly table food farming. It works to identify and obtain land for the development of small, sustainable farms. It has protected 14 farms on 1,130 acres since 2015, and the Circle Our Cities campaign is the latest step in that effort, Aram said. Local food farms can play an integral role in the fight against food insecurity, which affects 1 in 11 people in Iowa. Of those, 1 in 8 are children. Overall, nearly 300,000 Iowans are experiencing food insecurity, a problem that saw heightened need during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, according to data from the Feeding America website. Business Publications Corp. and its publications, including The Business Record, DSM Magazine, and IA Magazine, are in their second year of their Iowa Stops Hunger campaign to bring attention to the plight of those who are food insecure and to shed light on those who have made it their mission to help. SILT is trying to be part of that solution with its Circle Our Cities campaign and the organization has hired a, quote, land scout to reach out to Central Iowa landowners who may be interested in entering into landowner agreements where their land would be preserved for sustainable food farms. They will network with folks who work with landowners who are both excited about our vision and our mission of growing food for the future and have the capacity to donate their land or a portion of their land or a conservation easement, Aram said. That land scout is Kiera Fish, a recent Drake University graduate who has experience as a community organizer. Fish said her initial focus is areas around Des Moines, in Polk, and surrounding counties, but the long-term plan is to expand the campaign statewide. I think people are really excited about it, she said. I think it seems like a really good solution, seeing all the development that is encroaching upon places they used to be farms and knowing that there needs to be an organization that's looking to protect farms and create these sustainable food networks for the future. Fish said, Growing food closer to where it is needed only makes sense in addressing food insecurity. Keeping foods local and locally produced, It supplies these markets with nutrient-dense, healthy foods, she said. We saw how fragile the supply chains were during COVID when stores ran out of food. So fighting food insecurity by creating these nature-friendly farms in close proximity to cities and markets makes sense. The farms will also help keep money circulating within local economies, Fish said. It's a win-win situation because we're protecting farms producing these fresh farm-to-table foods and creating jobs as well, she said. Silt plans to offer distribution and marketing support to startup farms, Fish said. One of the farms protected by Silt is Grade A Gardens near Earlham. Jordan and Whitney Claussen purchased the land at a discount from Bob Winchell who sought ways to preserve the land as part of settling his wife Thelma's estate. The land is adjacent to the Bear Creek Friends Meeting House, where the Winchells attended. Thelma Winchell purchased it to prevent it from being developed for residential or commercial use. Bob sought to donate the land through silt to make his wife's wishes become a reality. Jordan Clausen said Grade A Gardens offers a large community-supported agriculture network made up of 100 families. A CSA is a production system where people buy shares of a farmer's harvest in advance and then receive various fresh produce throughout the season. The Clausens also sell produce at the downtown farmer's market and sell produce to some of the restaurants in Des Moines. Clausen and his wife met and became involved in silt when he was produce manager at Gateway Market. They rented space in Johnston for nine years, and after getting married three years ago, decided to begin searching for land to own. We probably walked 40 to 50 farms. We kind of had a list of what we wanted in a farm, said Clausen, who along with his wife has two children, ages two years and five months. Silt had given us a lead that this farm we're on was going to be up for sale. My wife and I drove out here, and we knew the second we walked on it that it was just the spot. It's close to town. It's flat fields. It was just a good spot. With eight acres going into production this year, Clausen plans to grow a range of produce from lettuce and spinach to tomatoes, potatoes, zucchini, squash, sweet potatoes, garlic, and apples. The Claussen's paid $115,000 for just under 27 acres. They have now built a house to live in and they did a Kickstarter campaign that raised $150,000 to build a barn. Justin Claussen sees local food farms as an important element in the fight against food insecurity. We crank out quite a bit of food, producing real food that is nutritious, So we feel if they circle our cities with more farms like ours, we could really start feeding people, he said. Establishing food farms close to cities also provides an opportunity to educate people on how their food is grown and how it can be prepared, Clausen said. One way Grade A Gardens does this is by hosting its annual garlic festival on June 5th, which is free and open to the public. Just that interaction, just talking goes a long way, but you can't do that if people can't get to your farm, Clausen said. It's important to be close to town and have that talk. From the healthcare column, an inspirational space for healing. Dr. Richard Deming discusses goals of Namesake Cancer Center by Joe Gardiaz. Entering Dr. Richard Deming's modest office on the top floor of his namesake cancer center at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center, one's eye is drawn to a large, colorful surrealist painting, one that Deming says makes him smile whenever he looks at it. The calming beauty of the art located throughout the Richard Deming Cancer Center is one of the instruments in a full tool belt of whole person healing that the Center of Excellence offers its patients, who are often embarking on the fight of their lives as they confront a cancer diagnosis and treatment journey. A hallmark of the new $16 million facility, which was formally dedicated on January 21st, is its focus on patient-centered care. It's the first cancer center in Central Iowa in which patients are seen within 48 hours to one week of their diagnosis, in a space that allows patients to meet with their cancer team at the same time and place. Depending on the day of the week, the suite of combined examination consultation rooms at the center is filled with patients, often joined by their family members, who on their initial consultation will be seen by their entire cancer treatment team. The response from patients has been overwhelmingly positive, Deming said, ticking off several aspects of the renovated center after providing the business record a whirlwind tour. Number one, the physical space is beautiful and calming and lends itself to a sense of trust and optimism, he said. Second, the size of the room and the accommodations for patients and their families enable physicians to be able to sit and comfortably engage in conversation. There are large monitors on the wall to be able to show the patients their x-rays, their pathology reports in a comfortable roomy space that invites conversation. I think a space like this not only inspires patients, but inspires and influences providers to approach things with a sense of calm, confidence, and optimism. Historically, healthcare has been delivered from a doctor-centered point of view rather than a patient-centered point of view. Deming not noted. The new center, with its patient-centered approach, turns that philosophy around. It provides great efficiency for the patient, but in all honesty, not as much efficiency for the doctor, he said. If we're going to have five different specialists see that patient on the same day, there's a lot of scheduling that has to be taken into account. The new center coordinates a number of existing services for patients, among them genetic counseling, nurse navigators, clinical trials, and mental health counseling but importantly, it also encompasses four new treatment programs. The first, the multidisciplinary clinic, enables newly diagnosed patients to meet in one room with their team of care specialists to develop an overall treatment plan. Two, the survivorship clinic is available to patients who have been through their cancer treatments and are free of cancer but need ongoing follow-up for physical, emotional, psychological, financial, and other issues they may be facing. Three, the Living with Cancer Clinic is a resource for patients who are coping with stage 4 terminal cancer or incurable cancers. And four, the Integrative Medicine Clinic incorporates therapeutic approaches, including massage therapy, acupuncture, chiropractic, osteopathic manipulation, art therapy, music therapy, mental health, and nutrition counseling. As important as what takes place in the center is what doesn't take place there, Deming noted. In this space here, we don't do chemotherapy. We don't do radiation therapy in this space. We don't do surgery in this space. What happens in this space is Space is the patient centered approach to designing the plan of care, following with the plan of care, and then bringing to the patient who is on the cancer journey all of these integrative approaches. Cancer research and the promise of potentially immediate clinic trials or new hope for future generations are built into the center. Although Mercy One has participated in cancer research trials for decades, The Deming Cancer Center intentionally located the clinical trials team in a large corner space on the third floor, a move Deming hopes will promote greater visibility to patients and consequently greater enrollment in the clinical trials. Patients are often the best champions of research, Deming said. So, many patients want to have access to the latest treatment, but they also know that by participating in clinical trials, they are advancing science. Even if they may get randomized to the current state-of-the-art treatment instead of the experimental study, by participating, they are helping future patients. So by making it highly visible in our new space, it will serve as a bit of direct marketing and public relations to the patients themselves to ask about clinical trials. As I left Deming's office, he told me about the painting. The work by Ruben Sanchez, titled Adam and Eve, depicts Adam and Eve leaving paradise after the fall of mankind, riding a motorized bike. Though Eve is looking back at what was lost, Adam looks ahead with hope, as does Deming. Here are some thoughts on other topics I asked Deming about during our discussion. Looking at the successful fundraising effort that was done for this renovated cancer center, what is the value you see in the attention it has brought to delivering a different approach to cancer care? There is a relationship between form and function, and I would say I've always realized that a doctor taking care of a cancer patient is a human being caring for another human being. That is the essence of humanities. It's really both and, not either or. Taking care of someone with cancer requires employing the latest technology, but along with a compassionate, patient-centered approach that recognizes the essence of being a human being. What the capital campaign did was not only allow us to remodel the space in this building and create this top floor that we're on, it also allowed us to acquire some new technology in radiation oncology. We were able to purchase the newest model of CyberKnife stereotactic radiosurgery. We have also have purchased a linear accelerator for intraoperative radiation therapy. That's bringing radiation into the operating room at the time of surgery. We've also purchased another operating head to our da Vinci robot for the surgeons who use robotic surgery as part of the cancer surgery. So now there can be two surgeons operating at the same time. We also acquired a piece of technology for our pulmonologists to do robotic bronchoscopy. With all of the attention in the community given to diversity, equity, and inclusion, tell me how that fits in with the mission of the Deming Cancer Center. Is this facility accessible to the lowest income residents of Des Moines? I'm glad you asked that because what we call the patient mix at Mercy One, not only the zip code the patient lives in, but do they have private insurance provided by their employer? Are they on Medicare or Medicaid? Purchase insurance on the exchange, or are they uninsured? If you look at all in those categories, Mercy One serves a greater proportion of those more vulnerable populations than probably any cancer center in this city. Mercy, due to its physical location, its faith-based mission, and its long-standing dedication to charity care, serves a large number of vulnerable patients. And we've created a space that is welcoming and accommodating to individuals of diverse backgrounds, as it is to the more traditional Iowan. Also, the National Cancer Institute has a big focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. They understand that in the past, most clinical trials have enrolled very few people of ethnic minorities, and that the result of clinical trials in the past may not have been as applicable to individuals of color. So there is an emphasis to enroll individuals in the same proportion as the population that your cancer center is in. In early February, President Joe Biden announced that he would renew the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, a $1.8 billion cancer research program launched five years ago with a fresh target of decreasing cancer deaths by at least 50% in the next 25 years. What does that announcement mean for the Deming Cancer Center? There's the biblical story about the parting of the Red Sea, and it wasn't until Moses entered the water that the sea parted. So there is something powerful about beginning, stating where you're going and starting the journey that then makes things happen. And so I think that was part of the moonshot. We also realized that we had gotten to a point in research where because of big data and the computing power of bringing things together, that we had the capability if we broke down some silos and brought people together to actually accelerate the speed with which research could be accomplished. Also, there's more and more emphasis on biospecimens. So almost anyone who enters a clinical trial will provide informed consent to participate, but also provide informed consent for us to collect a tube of blood. You're going to be seeing more even later this year new cancer screening tests that are going to come out. Using those biospecimens, even in the future, you may be able to go back and retrospectively analyze the blood that was drawn at the time the patient was enrolled to see was there something that we can now analyze in that original blood that might lead to a test that would not only have predicted but influence the treatment that that patient got. What are your personal goals in the next few years? I will turn 70 next year. Anyone who is blessed to reach this age should appropriately be reflecting on the past, looking to the future, but also looking at not just personal accomplishments, but mentoring and succession planning to make sure that what we all create here together will last generations longer than we will last. So part of my personal goals is to continue to mentor and inspire and create programs that I can pass the baton to the next generation. From a personal perspective, I have a triathlon buddy who was born the same year I was, and we want to run our next triathlon at age 70. We're looking at doing an international Ironman in Kazakhstan in the year 2023, assuming they don't have another coup, that we can still do international travel, and that I don't fall off my bike and hit my head any harder than I did the last time. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, March eleventh, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Our next story, related to the one we just heard, Healing Through Art by Jody Gifford. For patients of the new Mercy One Richard Deming Cancer Center, music and art will be much more than a pleasant diversion. They'll be tools for healing. The $16 million center, located on the Mercy One campus in downtown Des Moines, not only will offer cutting edge technology and traditional medical regimens, but also multidisciplinary integrative treatments such as acupuncture, chiropractic care, massage, yoga, meditation, prayer, animal-assisted therapy, diet and exercise, and music and art therapy. As part of that approach, Mercy One Des Moines Foundation commissioned a music composition for a string quartet and a painting. Each will premiere the day the sender opens to the public. As of press time, that date had not been set, but was expected to be sometime this winter. The painting, titled Acceptance of the Journey, was created by Des Moines artist James Jimmy Navarro and will hang in the lobby. An acrylic on canvas, the work features a contemporary landscape that includes a distant mountain, a valley punctuated by a flowing river, storm clouds, and sunshine to symbolize the different points in a patient's journey. Navarro says the painting was inspired by his girlfriend's aunt, Nancy Jensen, who died in 2020 after a 20-year battle with breast cancer. Jensen, he says, was like family to him, and watching her live with cancer was humbling. On the outside, she was smiling and doing all these normal things. But inside, she was in severe pain, he says. I remember talking about chemotherapy, and she said it helped her feel good. It gave her more time with her family. But cancer was part of her life, and she had accepted that. Navarro says the painting speaks to anyone living with cancer whether they were just diagnosed or are approaching the end of their life. It's about accepting where they might be on their own journey, he said. The music composition, titled A Musical Blessing, also is meant to symbolize a journey, taking listeners through the highs and lows of a diagnosis, says California-based composer Nolan Gasser. A Pandora musicologist, and founder of the Music Genome Project. There's kind of a story to the music that's like a movie, says Gasser, who composed a similar piece for Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. The music's role is, quote, to help participate in healing, because if you're dealing with cancer, you're dealing with a lot of rough days. Even if you're optimistic, and even if you're getting good reports from the doctor, there's a lot of suffering. You have to go through that. So the peace doesn't shy away from that, he he added. There's some dissonance, but there's also hope and courage, and then ultimately there is a sense of joy that this can be overcome. And you can always tell when that apotheosis is coming. Everything is leading to it, and it's the moment when you get chills. And it doesn't mean that it's the loudest section. It can often be quiet, but it's where all roads lead, Gasser said. Gasser's piece will be adapted for use during music therapy sessions for patients. The music and art, along with all the other therapies, are intended to help treat the whole person and not just the disease, says Dr. Richard Deming who will be the center's medical director. It's the kind of compassionate care he's been advocating and practicing for more than 30 years. What started off as a career in cancer care has really morphed into a ministry of healing, says Deming, also the founder of the nonprofit organization Above and Beyond Cancer. A cancer center is so much more than killing cancer cells, he says. Yes, the technology and expertise to kill cancer cells is part of what we do, but it is so much more. It's taking care of the whole person. It's not just a doctor taking care of a patient. It's a human being taking care of another human being, and that is so important. In the commercial real estate section, this story Two planned sports venues will spark development interest along Merle Hay Road, Johnston official says, by Kathy A. Bolton. For nearly a decade, city officials in Johnston have been piecing together plans for redeveloping Merle Hay Road, the backbone of the city that stretches from Interstate Highway 80 north to Northwest Beaver Drive. The nearly three mile stretch of road is where Johnston got its start. It's where city offices are located and it's what the main east-west arterial roads connect to. Time has been harsh to some of the properties along Merle Hay Road, with several becoming tired looking, falling into disrepair or being abandoned. Rather than wait for the private sector to step forward, the city created a plan to reinvigorate the area. In 2019, plans were unveiled for the Johnston Town Center, a $100 million development on the northeast corner of Merle Hay Road and Northwest 62nd Avenue that city officials build as a gathering place for residents. A new city hall opened in 2021. Also opening was a splash pool that converts to an ice rink and about an acre of green space called The Yard at which people can gather to hear concerts, watch movies, and participate in other activities. Construction of two commercial buildings is underway and expected to be completed by mid-year. Officials have now turned their attention to the area just north of the interstate. This is an area where we really tried to lay out a plan for a destination location, said David Wilwarding, Johnston's Community Development Director. We wanted to support existing businesses along Merle Hay, but also draw a lot of visitors into our community, he said. In late February, the Johnston City Council took steps to make the area a destination location. The council approved a site plan for Ignite, an indoor-outdoor sports fitness complex planned on the west side of Merle Hay Road at Northwest Johnston Drive. The 30-acre complex will include a 200,000-square-foot facility with an indoor track, a full-size soccer field, meeting spaces, and fitness areas. Volleyball courts, baseball fields, and a soccer field will be outside. Construction of the indoor facility is expected to be completed by spring 2023. The council also approved a development agreement with Stoy and Can Development, which is proposing to build a golf, entertainment venue, a hotel, and three other mixed-use buildings at 5055 Merle Hay Road. The golf venue, called Bombers, will include 60 bays from which golf balls can be hit onto a driving range. It would be the second such venue proposed in the Des Moines area. Attached to the four-level bomber golf venue will be a 100-room hotel. Also included in the complex will be a video arcade, a rooftop bar and other bars, a full-service restaurant, and private meeting rooms and event spaces. Construction of the $80 million project is expected to begin this spring and be completed by summer 2023. Planning for the project began in August 2020. Brothers Eric and Mitchell Can contacted Troon, an Arizona-based golf management company, about doing a feasibility study on whether the Des Moines area could support a top golf-like facility, Eric Kahn said. When the studies showed such a venue would be successful, the brothers began looking for land on which to build, including in Waukee, they said. When word started leaking out that we were looking in Waukee, the price of the land suddenly got a lot more expensive, said Dr. Alan Stoy, senior managing partner of Stoy and Can Development. The group learned about the land in Johnston, which the city had purchased last October, and a deal was struck to purchase the parcels at 5055, 5229, and 5249 Merle Hay Road. Since news of the proposed golf entertainment project broke, the development group has been contacted by retail-related businesses interested in locating in one of the three mixed-use buildings, Stoy said. Originally, construction of the three buildings was expected to be completed by the end of 2026. Stoy said one or more of the buildings could be completed before then. Our plan is not to sell that ground to somebody, but to own it and do a build to suit, Stoy said. We really like this site, and with some of the other things that might be built there will be a very exciting addition to the Des Moines area, he said. Johnston's Wilwarding agreed. He said, the Bomber Complex and Ignite I think will really spark development interest up and down the entire Merle Hay Corridor. Now, turning to Dave Elbert's column, The Elbert Files Faulty Towers. The University of Iowa's Stead Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City and the Neil Smith Federal Building in Des Moines are faulty towers. Both were erected with fanfare that dissipated into disappointment as flaws were discovered. The 14-story hospital was completed in 2017, adjacent to Kinnick Stadium, and has been widely publicized during football games when fans and players wave to patients. Des Moines' 10-story federal office building at 210 Walnut Street, it wasn't named in honor of longtime Congressman Neil Smith until 2007, was built in 1967 to replace the city's 19th-century federal building. The 1871 building at 55th Street and Court Avenue was demolished in 1968 and replaced by a parking garage. The federal building was beset with problems from the start. Shortly after construction got underway in December 1964, changes had to be made to the design of the foundation. The Des Moines Tribune reported in 1967 as federal employees prepared to move into the building. A later Tribune article reported the building opened with leaky pipes, quote, non-airtight windows, and, and, quote, erratic elevator. Although a government official said the structure was, quote, a fine, handsome, functional building, end quote. The U.S. Government Services Agency said the building cost $2.7 million to build in 1967 or about $23 million in 2022 dollars. In 1980, a GSA official confirmed that windows had always leaked, and he told me it would cost $8 million, 27 million in today's money, to fix them. The leaks, he explained, were caused by flashing that was installed incorrectly. Instead of channeling rainwater away from the building, the flashing brought it inside, producing considerable damage over time. Two decades later, in 2003, the government spent another $12 million, $18 million in 2022, to replace the roof and create new glass facades over problem windows. The five-year-old Stead Family Children's Hospital in Iowa City already is also in need of expensive repairs, including the possibility of replacing all its windows. I originally wrote about the hospital in 2018 when the university was stiffing a Cedar Rapids-based mechanical contractor for $17 million of a $74 million bill for work at the hospital and Hancher Auditorium. That bill was finally paid in 2019, according to Cedar Rapids Gazette reporter Vanessa Miller, who has written extensively about the hospital and its problems. Before the dispute was resolved, I wrote a tongue-in-cheek suggestion that the Iowa football team pay part of the $17 million because of the free TV publicity it got on game days when fans and players waved to sick children in the hospital's press box-like top-floor windows. At the time, the Gazette's Miller wrote about a series of design changes and construction delays that would be funny if they weren't so expensive. To date, roughly $392 million has been spent to build the hospital, which is about $118 million or 40% more than was originally budgeted, according to Miller. She noted that one of the more costly changes occurred a month before construction was originally slated to begin, when designers changed the shape of the hospital from rectangular to elliptical, a shape that was more challenging and more costly to build. She also reported that during construction, there were more than 1,000 change orders, creating what one expert said was a, quote, messy project contractually, end quote. Now the window problem has surfaced. Miller wrote last month that, quote, officials have decided to replace every window in a new bridge connecting the children's hospital with the main UIHC campus, end quote, at an estimated cost of 3.6 million dollars. There are also plans to replace other windows, and Miller wrote that it is possible that all windows in the 14 story building might need to be replaced at a cost of up to $15 million. It's not clear why both buildings have had such problems with windows. I just hope whatever mistakes were made are not repeated in the nine-story, $137 million U.S. courthouse that is nearing completion and on Des Moines' downtown riverfront. Our final story, Tiny Bats Spur Removal of Trees by Kathy A. Bolton. Two species of bats are having a large effect on the development of a golf entertainment venue planned on 12 acres in Johnston. The city of Johnston is allowing Stoy and Can development, the group behind the planned $80 million project, to begin removing trees even though the sale of the property hasn't yet been finalized. The Indiana Brown Bat and the Northern Long-Eared Bat, both designated as endangered species, Roost in the trees in the spring and summer months, making removal of the trees illegal. In Iowa, that means trees in areas where the bats are found can't be removed between mid-March and mid-October. Both of those bats roost in trees that are essentially dying or have loose bark, said David Wilwarding, Johnston's Community Development Director. Trees can only be removed when the bats aren't roosting, so then you're not impacting their habitat. The Indiana brown bat and the northern long-eared bat are among 1,300 endangered species, those threatened of becoming extinct, in the United States, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Both species weigh less than an ounce. The Indiana brown bat spends about six months of the year in Midwestern states in stands of trees near water, according to Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. Pregnant female bats roost in maternity colonies of 100 or more bats. Male bats roost alone or in small groups. The northern long-eared bat is found in east and north-central parts of the United States and in Canada. In the winter months, the bats hibernate in caves and mines, according to Bat Conservation International. In the spring, pregnant female bats live in colonies underneath loose tree bark, or in hollowed tree cavities. Both bat species have been adversely affected by white-nose syndrome, a disease caused by a fungus that grows in cold, dark, and damp places. The disease, for which there is no known cure, primarily affects hibernating bats. In the past decade, millions of bats have died from the fungus. The decline in those particular bat populations has also been linked to tree removal, according to the USDA. In an effort to help replenish the population of the Indiana brown and northern long-eared bats, the federal government only allows trees in areas where the bats are found to be removed during the months the mammals are hibernating. The tree removal on the Johnston property must be completed by March 15th. If it's not done by then, special approvals must be obtained to complete the removal, or it can be finished after October 15th. The development agreement between the City of Johnston and Stoyan and Cannes development also requires that the development group spend between $50,000 and $125,000 on new tree plantings and prairie and savanna improvements. When everything is done, that area will be a much more healthy environment that will succeed in the long term, Wilwarding said. And that does it for today's reading of The Business Record for Friday, March 11, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
1: From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is EarthDate. Though our electricity system is highly complex, its basic principle is simple. 99% of our electricity comes from turning a generator. We do that mostly by burning a resource like coal or natural gas to boil water, which makes steam, which turns a turbine connected to a generator. Heat from a nuclear reaction or a geothermal well are other ways to make steam and turn a generator. Water held behind a dam, then released to flow through turbines, turns generators without having to produce steam. All these generation systems produce emissions, like water vapor, CO2 or other gases, particulates, or a small amount of nuclear waste. And all of them are available on demand, which is very important, because we can't store electricity very well at scale. So it must be made when we need it. Wind, too, turns a generator. It makes up about 1% of global power generation. Solar, the only one to produce electricity without a generator, makes up another 1%. Wind and solar produce no emissions, but they have other environmental impacts in mining materials, manufacturing, the large amounts of land they occupy, and eventual disposal. And because they make electricity only when the sun shines or the wind blows, we have to back them up with other power sources. The modern world depends on our electricity system, and it's something we'll talk more about. I'm Scott Tinker with another electrifying Earth Date. Earth EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.